Well, in just a couple of weeks, uh, June 16th, actually, it's my plan to roll out a new series of messages that I'm very excited about. And uh, the title of, of the series is Magnificent, and I'm really just stunned by some of the things the Lord's stirring in my heart for you, uh, things that I think are going to be very encouraging to you, very empowering, very liberating for you. Uh, about God's view of you as a magnificent creature of His. And I really just uh, am looking forward to June 16th. We're going to finish the series today, and then we're going to do a couple of onesies in between. But uh, today we're going to finish this mountaintop series. We've been taking a tour of eight mountains of the Bible, five in the Old Testament and three in the New Testament, although all of them were around during both Testaments. How about that? And what we've discovered so far is a treasure at the top of each one of these, uh, each one of these mountains. And something that God has spoken to us that is meant to encourage us, equip us, send us uh, out as passionate believers and followers of Jesus. The first one, uh, you, I think you have pretty well down, that there's always blessing on the other side of what? Obedience. When God calls you to obey things, He's calling you to make your life better, not worse. And so on the other side of obedience, it's always closer to Him. As we live more closely to the Father, we live a more blessed life. It's an automatic. The second thing we saw from Mount Sinai is that God brings order out of chaos. God brings order out of chaos. That it's the plan of the devil to bring chaos and mayhem into your life, into your relationships, into your thinking, into your view of yourself, all these things. That is the plan of the enemy, but it's God's plan by His Holy Spirit to bring order out of that. To bring order out of that chaos and to camp over you as the Lord of all of it so that He can bring you to this great place. The third thing uh, we saw was that it's the heart of God to guide every authentic follower of Jesus Christ by a clear and compelling sense of vision. That God wants to give you a vision. The Bible says that you are unique relation, you are unique, crea- unique creation. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It says to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. So that God has a unique plan for your unique life. You're not just sort of part of this big amorphous blob of humanity but you are unique creation to god and god means to reveal his purposeful plan to you so that you can live not just by trying to keep it between the ditches for your life you know and see if you can survive but actually to live out purposefully and fulfill god's plan for your life the fourth treasure we found was that god will always be there when you need him listen god will always be there when you need him That big showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And God showed up in power. And believers, God will always be there when you need Him. There's no circumstance in which you'll ever find yourself that God won't be there. He'll always be there when you need Him. Uh, The next week we looked at that psalm in Mount Zion. And we discovered that redeemed sinners make what? the best kind of worshipers redeemed sinners make the best kind of worshipers which why explains why you worship so well you come with your list you come here broken thank god you come here as sinners and i'm a sinner and it says god redeems us from our sin cancels the the, the debt of our sin through His own Son, Jesus Christ, 
that it just launches us into this place of being the very best, best kinds of worshipers. Uh, the next week when we looked at the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus revealed something to all of us on that mountain, and that's that it's Him. It's really Him. Jesus Christ is who all the Old Testament said was coming, who all the New Testament says He is, and He demonstrated that by transfiguring Himself before those few disciples. And we can have confidence, you guys. It's Him. It's really Him. So of all the things that are floating out there on your radar about what could be, know this. Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. Know that. Okay? And then last week when we briefly visited that Mount of Olives with all the talk about end times and stuff, we came away with this treasure. Do not wait until tomorrow to do what is in your heart to do today. To do what you know in your heart you need to do today. Don't wait. The Bible says watch. Watch, therefore, for you don't know the hour that your Lord's coming back. So do the right thing today. Today we're going to be looking at the final mountain in the tour, and it's Mount Calvary. Mount Calvary, and if you want to follow along, I'm going to be looking at Luke chapter 23. I'm going to start in verse 26 and work our way through this essential passage in the gospel which talks about the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. And it happened at a place called Uh, The Skull, Calvary, uh, Golgotha, in the different translations, but they all mean the same thing. I'm going to start reading in verse 26. It would be really good if if you could just kind of settle your heart in and listen and follow along if you like. But uh, just let let something speak to you as we go through here. As they led him away... They seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For the time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wombs that have never bore and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him. I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Lord, 
we bow before you because your word is precious to us. It's truth. And we want it to come alive. We don't want it just to be food for our heads, but power for our hearts. And so we stop right now just to place ourselves in your hands, ask you to speak the specific parts of this word that you mean for us as individuals and to speak the full message of it over us as a body. God, I thank you for every person here. I thank you for the ones that had amazingly effective, powerful, victorious weeks. And I thank you for the ones who drugged themselves here after failure after failure. I thank you for them equally. And I pray your blessing on us as we as we look into the power of this word in Jesus' name. Amen. So there on this thing called the skull or Calvary or Golgotha, Mount Calvary, also known as Golgotha, is an elevation immediately outside the walls of Jerusalem, I'm told. The very place, obviously, where Jesus was crucified for our sins. I understand that it's called the skull because of its eerie resemblance to a human skull in some ways. This was the place that Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world on, a, on an elevation that somehow resembled a skull. Could it be any more graphic? The most graphic presentation of the death of humanity would be a human skull, death. And death reigns over us. Death reigns over us as unredeemed sinners. But it was on top of that mountain that God planted the cross of Jesus Christ And we have to understand something, that as we look for the treasure on Mount Calvary, this is one that we can't really climb. We can't really climb this one the way we climb Mount Moriah to see what Abraham was up to, or the way we climb Mount Carmel to see what Elijah was up to. This Mount Calvary is a a mountain that only Jesus can climb for us. We have no capacity to remedy our own death in in ourselves. The, the skull was a representation of the death of humanity, of the curse of sin. And Jesus Christ, who is life, climbed it for us, died on the top of it to cancel the penalty of our sin, which is death. But only Jesus could do that. Only life can conquer death. I can't conquer death because I am death. I'm part of the death generation. I'm part of the curse before Christ. But Jesus... Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the what? The life. He said it. I'm the life. So only he was qualified to climb this mountain for us and to camp on top of the skull, on top of death, and change everything for the course of humanity, for the course of my life, for the course of your life. So what happens then at the top of this thing? What's the treasure What what is this thing that we want to take away from the top of Mount Calvary? Well, I think the key to the treasure of Mount Calvary is actually found in another part of the Bible, and that's Philippians chapter 2. If you're newer to the Bible, just keep heading toward the end from Luke, and you'll find Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Stop and uh, look at chapter 2. Philippians was a book written by the Apostle Paul to Christians who lived in the city of Philippi many years ago. And hence it got its name. But here in, in the book of Philippians, there's so many powerful things. It's such an encouraging book, is it not? How many have read it? Anybody? Seven? Twelve? Good. Uh, 
Such a powerful, encouraging book. There's so much in there. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. There's so much in there. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. There's so much encouraging stuff in there. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There's so much practical, encouraging stuff in there. Just think about it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, it says in there. It says that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. That's all in Philippians. It's all there for you. It's all there to pick you up and encourage you, give you altitude, give you lift. That's what Philippians is for. Just stretch your wings out like an eagle. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, right? This is not in Philippians, it's in Isaiah. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. You know about eagles, right? They don't fly, they fall with grace. Eagles don't fly well. And so they make their nests on the sides of cliffs. And there they stand and they wait for the updraft. They're a big bird, lot to haul around. And they wait for it like this. And when they catch it right here, they go and fall out of the nest and fall into the updraft of God. They that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. This is what Philippians is for you, beloved. It's the air. It's the updraft. You ever been down? You ever had terrible news? Get into Philippians. Just stand there and just wait for the updraft and fall into the lift of God. This is what Philippians is. And in Philippians here is also this compelling theological statement about the nature of Christ. It tells us who Jesus is in Philippians chapter 2. And here's what it says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Oh, that doesn't sound like a hard job, does it? Well, there it is. Your attitude... What attitude? He said, who being in very nature God. Now he's going to tell us something about the essential quality of Jesus. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. You see this? See what he's doing? He's going lower and lower. He's God. Jesus Christ. God incarnate. It says he considered his equality with God not something to be grasped, but he took it off. And for our sake, he took off his godness and he set it aside. But not only did he come in human likeness, like Michael and me, but he became a servant. It said he became the lowest of lowest of lowest of slaves. It said he became a slave. God becomes a slave. This is critical to get the treasure from Mount Calvary. That God, Jesus Christ, became a slave. Lower and lower. And what did he do as a slave? And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what happened on the top of the skull was God functioning as a slave. You get this? This is critical. God functioning as a slave, laying aside all of his rights as God, getting as low as he could possibly go so that what he did on the cross encompasses everyone. He didn't come for this class of society. He didn't come for this class of society. He didn't come for this class of society. He came here so that he came for all classes of society. He came for everyone by going that low. And herein is the key to the treasure of Mount Calvary. 
that Jesus became a servant. And that servant did something essential on the cross. By taking on the role of a slave, Jesus made a way for an unbelievable transformation to occur in us. He, made, he did something there that provides an opportunity for me and for Barb to have an unbelievable transformation in us. And so while we were born into the generation of sin, this can all be changed because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We had no capacity to do that for ourselves. We are only death. We're born into death. The wages of sin is death. We're going to die. But we have no life. But Jesus was life for us. And by doing that as a slave, as it was essentially did it as a slave, so as to encompass all of humanity, he made a way for an incredible transformation to occur in our lives. Something that we couldn't generate on our own. And the treasure of Mount Calvary is what I consider, just in hearing and listening, to be a quote from Jesus on the cross. I, it's, it's not in the scripture uh, per se, but it's what I hear Jesus saying on the cross. And the treasure of Mount Calvary is simply this. I'll be a slave so you can be a son. I'll be a slave so you can be a son. I'll be the slave to make a way for you to be a son. What Jesus did on the cross for us was to make a way for us to move from slavery, slavery to sin, to sonship in the house of God. Not from slavery to slavery, but slavery to sonship. In the house of God. Daughterhood in parentheses. Depending on your chromosomal structure. Sonship. Adoption. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. In John chapter 13, Jesus stunned his disciples by doing what? By washing their feet. They're all circled up, ready for the high life of the Passover. This is going to be amazing. And just says Jesus got up and he took off his robe. Wow, that's symbolic. Took off my robe. You guys have been elevating me for three years now, he says. And he takes off his robe and he puts on the towel and he begins to wash their feet. And many of you already know that that was only done by the lowest of low slaves. That the lowest possible slave in the house was the one who had to wash people's feet. So they came in barefoot. They came in maybe with some grungy sandals. This is way before like Dr. Scholl's foot powder and stuff, right? And so they came in grungy. And it was the job of the lowest possible slave to wash their feet, to refresh them, to wash their feet as they came into the house. Nobody wanted to do it. So it was always the job of the lowest slave. Jesus voluntarily took off his robe, set it aside, took on the towel, said, I'm going to wash your feet. He said, I want to be a slave so that something can happen to you. He got to Peter, and Peter said, Whoa, no, you're not going to wash my feet, Lord. And Jesus said this, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Unless you let Jesus be the slave that does for you 
the thing you can't do for yourself. We're unbelievers. We're on the wrong side of the equation. This is what Jesus was showing us in John chapter 13. He said, I'll be the slave so you can be the sons. In Romans chapter 8, it says it a different way. Paul says in a very compelling way, Romans chapter 8. He's talking about what it means to be a Christian and the transformation that's occurred in us. And uh, he says in verse 15, he says, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave. He said, you know, in coming to Christ, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a, a slave, a different kind of slave. It's, you didn't receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, it says. Again to fear. We live over on this side of the thing in fear, in fear of our death, in fear of the wrath of God. And he said, when you came to Christ, you didn't receive a spirit that just makes you a slave again to fear. And a taskmaster depends on fear to keep a slave doing what a slave needs to do. And the devil traffics in fear on this side of the equation, constantly trafficking in mayhem and fear in your life to keep you behaving, keep you producing sinful results in your life. What if everybody found out about your sin? Newsflash, we already know. Fear keeps you on this side. Fear is required. The slave has to fear the master. And the Bible says you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you received the spirit of what? Sonship. Sonship. In coming to Christ, you didn't change slave camps. You came from slavery to sonship. It's a full place in the family of God. Full place in the house of God. Keep reading. You received a spirit of sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. That Abba means Daddy. Dad! You know you're a slave if when you pray you go, Oh, most infinite holy Jehovah God, I beseech thee. You're filled with religious King James language. You're pretty sure there's a formula that if you don't get it right, you're going to die. That's what religion teaches. The Bible says you look to God and you say, Our Father which art in heaven, our daddy, your daddy. That's sonship. That's not slavery. A slave doesn't call the master daddy. It's sonship. By him we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Do you have that witness in your heart? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to testify in your heart that you're a child and not a slave, that you're a son and not a slave, you're a daughter and not a slave? Are you inviting that full transformation in your life so that you can live in the liberty of that rather than just changing fear structures? Come on, talk to me, church. Preaching better than your amen. And in other, some of your translations, I think the King James says, for you didn't receive a spirit that makes you get a slave to fear. 
but received a spirit of adoption, of adoption, of adoption. I love it. Adoption. Maybe that makes more sense. What is adoption? Well, adoption, the process is one that recognizes the fact that though a person is born into one family, through the process of adoption, he is fully transitioned into the other family. Fully transitioned into the other family. Born into one family, fully transitioned into the other family. That's what adoption is. And adoptive parents and adoptive children know that when you're in that family, you're not sort of a part of the family. You are as much a part of the family as anybody blood born into that family. That's the heart of every adoptive parent. Oh, please come and let me be your dad. Let me be your mom. Come on. You were born into this family, but through adoption, through the process of adoption, you are fully transitioned into another family. And the Bible says through Christ, you experience the process of adoption. You are born into the family of sin. We are all born into the family of death. But because of what Jesus Christ did on the top of that skull for you, you are fully transitioned into the family of God. And it was the blood of Jesus Christ that was the payment for the adoption fee. Adoption is expensive. And Jesus paid the full fee for you. Not to move you from one slave fear structure to another slave fear structure, but to rescue you from abusive parents, Satan. Rescue you from the abuse of sin and fully adopt you into the righteousness of God. This is the core of the gospel. We've got to allow that. We've got to enjoy that. We've got to embrace that. We've got to live from this place rather than going, man, I wonder if I can ever work hard enough to get over into that family. Maybe I can sneak in the back door. And once I get in the back door, they don't really know about me. Maybe I can just work really, really, really hard and nobody will kick me out. That's a lie from Satan. That person is still here. It's a full payment adoption fee. The blood of Jesus is the only currency accepted for this adoption fee. How many of you, like me, have been in another country with the wrong money? And it doesn't matter how much of it you have. They ain't taking it, are they? It doesn't mean anything to them. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus Christ is the only currency that will pay the adoption fee. Jesus paid it fully on the top of that mountain, on the top of that skull, saying what? Let me be the slave so you can be the sons. That's what adoption is. It would be a devilish kind of purchase, wouldn't it, if God paid for our adoption and this slavery just to come and make us slaves in his house? Beloved, you are not on the auction block waiting to be waiting to be bought by another taskmaster. You are being rescued to be embraced by your loving Father. This is the core of the Gospel. John 1.12 says, Yet to all who received Him, who embraced by faith this finished work on the cross, to all who received Him, He gave the right to become what? Children of God. Sons of God. Does it say he gave the right to join the slave group over here? Give the right to become slaves of God? Right to become the children of God. It 
frightens me that so much organized Christianity, religious Christianity, seems to miss this and is just an invitation to trade one slavery for another slavery. Saying, yeah, we can get you, we can fix you up about that, but you got to come over here and you got to do this, 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 more, 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 more. You're not measuring up. Better get with it or I don't know what Bible they're reading, but they're reading it upside down and backwards because that's not what the Bible says. Where's the freedom in that? You know, not only... Not only are you being invited into the house so that you don't have to worry about the rules and the law and the slavery anymore, but you're being invited in that house so that you can stand against the judgment of others. Because, you know, when you start living in this liberty, you'll have all kinds of people who go, oh, that can't be right. Christians aren't supposed to be this happy. There's, you're missing some of that somewhere. I'm miserable in my faith. You should be too. You can't do that. No, 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 not at my church you can't do that. All right, glad I'm not going to your church. Because it's not about that. In Colossians, the Bible says that when Jesus was on the cross, he destroyed the judgment of the law for you. I love this. You're in Philippians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 2, starting in verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, remember, that's over here born into the generation of death, born into the house of Satan. That's what happens. We didn't sign up for it. You don't get to pick your parents, do you? You don't get to pick them. And so that's what we're born by nature. And he says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. God did the work, not you. You just went for the ride. You said, sign me up for the ride. Take me from here to there. Adopt me. The parent does the work, not the child. Kids in an orphanage filling out their adoption papers, calling a lawyer. That's what the parent does. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Say all. Does that mean the ones from before? That means the ones you today, including the ones you're committing right now? Y'all, what about tomorrow? Are you sure about that? Shouldn't, now that doesn't even seem fair, does it? He's going to, he's going to, what? You mean you're figuring you're going to sin tomorrow? Raise your hand if you're pretty sure you're going to sin tomorrow. And that's covered? That's what it says. Let's go with what it says rather than what religion tries to teach. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that stood that was against us and that stood opposed to us. Catch this. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, he took Satan's gun away. Why would you give it back? Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, now we know what it's there for. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Do not let anybody judge you in your freedom and your liberty. Just because they can't make the life change doesn't mean you. they should try to drag you back. Don't let anybody judge you. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And when you have relationship with Christ, you're adopted 
rescued from the family into which you were born and brought fully into the family of God. So, good thing I run. I'd never have enough oxygen to preach up here. So, how would you characterize your relationship with God? Slave or son? Go slow. Go slow with answer that question. Devil's tricky. It's meant to be son. The devil's tricky. Even a free will in a place like this, the devil can be tricky. My sons never have to ask me for anything. They never have to beg me. I go out to my garage or my barn and something's missing. I know one of them has it. There's no checkout sheet. They just, what's mine is theirs. Are you living in that kind of relationship with God? Are you still begging? I'd be annoyed if my kids started begging me. Come on, stop already. Slave or son or daughter. I want to encourage you to allow, invite and allow the Holy Spirit to show you your adoption papers. If you're a Christian, you're adopted. Why would you function as a slave in the house of a father who went to such lengths to pay your adoption fee? Would you just ask the Holy Spirit, maybe right now, just say, Lord, would you show me this? If what he's saying is true, would you reveal it to my heart? I mean, you can catch this in your head because it's fairly logical, isn't it? But what? that's not really where you live from. You don't really do the things you think. You do the things that are in your heart. The Bible says, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. The Bible says what goes into a man's mouth is not what makes him unclean, but it's what comes out of a man's mouth that makes him unclean. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, Lord, would you reveal to these precious sons and daughters of yours the truth, the power, the validity, and the eternity of their adoption papers? Come, Holy Spirit. Come into this place. Lord, come. We just bow and pray to you now. Invite you to come. Minister among us. In truth, Spirit of God, come. Set prisoners free. Set the slaves free. Oh, Lord, come. Come and heal our sick, Lord. We would just invite you to just show off your power among us, God. What could be ever too hard for you? Nothing. Come, Lord. We invite you to come and reign over us. In the name of Jesus. Amen. One more thing I should tell you about the slave. If you keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Became obedient to death on the cross. There are a couple more key verses that follow. 
It says, therefore, therefore, because he did that, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the incredibly strange thing about all of this is that the slave who died on the cross for you is also your king. What king does that except a king who loves his people so much?